and welcome to Downtown, the podcast from Bangor, Maine. Rich Kimball with Carrie Haskell. Welcome into episode eight, Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Nice Brewing Company, German style beer from the woods of Maine and by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We focus on music on this week's edition of the podcast as uh, we spend our entire time talking with the writer, producer, director, David Leaf. He's the author of the book, The Beach Boys and the California Myth, produced uh, wonderful motion pictures on music figures like Who is Harry Nielsen and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? The Night James Brown Saved Boston, The U.S. versus John Lennon, Beautiful Dreamer, Brian Wilson, and The Story of Smile. And we'll talk about a couple of legendary music figures on this week's edition of the podcast. We begin because we're releasing the podcast on the 20th of June, which happens to be the 76th birthday of Beach Boys founding member Brian Wilson. Of course, Brian and his brothers, Carl and Dennis, got the group started along with cousin Mike Love, friend Al Jardine, neighbor David Marks, and of course went on to incredible success throughout the 60s and 70s. And uh, Beach Boys in various forms continue to make music and tour the world today. The story of Brian Wilson, an especially interesting one, David Leaf knows him awfully well, has worked with him on a number of projects, and talked with us about Brian Wilson. His music, uh, you know, arguably with three or four others, will will go down as the great classical music of the 20th century that uh, will be hummed and sung and delight people for centuries to come. His incredible ability to break down harmonies in his head, is that something that he was born with, or, or did it come from those countless hours he spent uh, listening to the four freshmen and then breaking down those harmonies on his piano? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll suggest it was both, um, that neither one without the other wouldn't have done it. But but certainly, uh, you know, the, the, the my, old, my old friend, the late Timothy White, used to call it woodshedding. The, the amount of time he just sent at, spent at the piano playing those four freshman songs and breaking down the harmonies it it taught him how to do it and and it when you when you as a beach boys fan if you went back and then listen you know if you hadn't heard the four freshmen and then you fell in love with the with the with what Brian had done and then you went back and listened to the freshmen you go oh that's where he got it from um and and you know he was there was there was certainly nothing secret about it um, and it was really that combination of taking jazz harmony and, and putting it in a rock and roll context that was absolutely, uh, you know, shocking for for uh, for the rock era of the 1960s. Uh, Brian's relationship uh, with his dad Murray was uh, certainly fraught. Um, Murray was a guy who, who wanted to have musical success himself, and and had had a little bit of a taste of that, but wanted more. The way he treated the boys, uh, the violence, um, obviously that overshadowed some of the good that he did. But he also was a key to their success. Yeah, I think I think that the there there are a couple of things that um, uh, Murray Wilson didn't didn't get acknowledged for in in the movie Love and Mercy a few years ago that that um, uh, which is a, it's a very good movie. But I think Murray, first of all, Murray recognized Brian's gifts early on, and even if he was terribly jealous of them, uh, he certainly encouraged them. 
he got Brian the equipment. He he built a music room for Brian. So um, whatever the, whatever his motivations were, whatever his envy was, there's no question that um, that Brian um, benefited from from Murray recognizing his gift. And encouraging it, and, you know, as a young, as a, as a teenage boy, Murray took him to see the four freshmen. I mean, how much more exciting could it be than, than for, um, uh, you know, so you, when you worship somebody, for somebody to take you to see your heroes? I mean, those are those are remarkable things that 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 shouldn't be uh, overlooked. And of course, just the family singing that went on in the house with mm. with, with Murray and, and and Mother Audrey and, and his brother Carl and, and Brian, where essentially he was practicing to make that family harmony sound. They had the tremendous early success, but did they become a better band when Brian took himself off the road and focused his efforts on the studio? Well, they became better record makers. Um, when he had the time to focus on it, um, the, the Beach Boys in in the in the early '60s, mid '60s, were were great live singers, but it wasn't a great it wasn't a great live band. But those records, you know, you know, won, were winning sounds because of their vocals, and they could do a pretty great job of of, of recreating that sound live. In in the uh, in the early '70s, they had an amazing touring band, but um, that's a that's a different question. Brian Brian needed sophisticated jazz musicians to play the music that was in his head, and he and he found it with Hal Blaine, Carol Kay, Don Randy, uh, Steve Douglas, etc. I mean, the, the the they were not known as the Wrecking Crew in the era. They were they were just the 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 triple A best players you could get, and uh, and and Brian had been to a Phil Spector session, had seen what Phil was doing with these musicians, and uh, inspired by it, he he brought him into the studio because he just had these sounds in his head that he needed to get out. We're talking with David Leaf here on Downtown. Mike Love has has fought to tell his story, came out with his own autobiography, but. In the long picture, long view of things, can Mike and Brian really be viewed as equal partners in the Beach Boys' success? Well, in in terms of the Beach Boys' success, Mike is absolutely essential um, as as the torchbearer for over fifty years. Uh, he's he's the one who has taken uh, whoever else wanted to go on the road. Uh, you know, obviously, in the in the in the first twenty five thirty years, it was the original Beach Boys, Carl and, and Dennis Wilson and Al Jardine, and Bruce Johnston joined in sixty five. And even though he left uh, circa seventy two, he's been back in the fold now for forty years. So um, they carry on, and you you know, we were just talking about Nilsson and his uh, unwillingness to tour. Uh, Mike uh, has never been unwilling to tour. He has he has reveled in uh, taking this music around the world over and over again, and and keeping it alive. So so from from uh, if if we think of the Beach Boys as a brand, he is mm. the the brand ambassador. I love Brian's work, but I'm a huge fan of Carl as well. And uh, do you feel he gets enough credit for holding the band together in those days after Brian became? pretty disengaged from things. Well, the th- the thing to keep in mind is 
you know, when the Beach Boys first started playing live, Carl was about 14 and a half years old. Right. So he devoted his life to it. Um, and uh, he, uh, he, to me, was, uh, and, and Dennis, too, in a different way, were just essential to, to what made it work live. Uh, Carl's voice, obviously, uh, was it was so important uh, to the, both the records and the and the and the live performances. And Dennis's presence, as uh, I called him, the real Beach Boy, he was the he was the one who surfed. He was mm-hmm. the one. He drove fast cars, really fast. <laughs> he went out to the Bonneville Salt Flats back in the day when that was the place where Craig Breedlove and company were. We're going way too fast. Uh, so, so it was it was a combination of all these folks, and and you know, sadly, uh, you know, Brian is the the last Wilson brother standing, and uh, you know, Mike is Mike is out there with Bruce, and uh, um, is Dave Marks with them now. I guess it's been off and on the last few years, but they they uh, they do a very you know solid job of of presenting the Beach Boys to the world. We've had Brian, Van Dyke. Brian, on the other hand, is you know the is is you know the 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 Beethoven figure, right. uh, kind of scowling and creating <laughs> amazing music, and uh, having you know to say the least a rocky life. We've had Van Dyke Parks on our show a number of times. Uh, he took a lot of heat from from Mike and others uh, for his work on on the Smile album. But it wasn't the first time Brian had worked with other lyricists. He had brought in Roger Christian, Tony Asher. What was it about Van Dyke Parks that seemed to rub Mike Love the wrong way? Uh, that's a question I'll have to ask Mike. <laughs> um, from the from the very beginning, uh, with when Brian was writing with Gary Usher and Bob Norberg, and as you said, Roger Christian, uh, Tony Asher, Russ Teitelman, I mean, Brian just loved to, to work, and he didn't love working alone. He was perfectly capable, um, as he showed with Surfer Girl, um, Surfing USA. He asked he asked his girlfriend's brother, "Give me a list of surfing uh, cities, like the you know, like Chuck Berry's Twist in USA, like uh, rock and roll music, and 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 Till I Die, and and so many other songs where Brian could express." exactly how he was feeling and what he was thinking lyrically he he could have done it uh to a certain degree on his own always he preferred the company of 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 like-minded folks and um you know the the thing that i always look at is what did the people do when they didn't write with brian mm. when they were writing with others or writing on their own and let's judge let's judge the strength of their talent that way um, I think it's pretty clear that you know most of the great songs that came out of that universe uh, originated at, at Brian Wilson's piano. Uh, Brian's time with uh, Dr. Eugene Landy uh, has been analyzed a number of times in, in a lot of different ways, and, and certainly that was uh, he was almost a prisoner for for many years. But was that though essential to his survival? Obviously, it was not handled the best way. But would he have made it without Dr. Landy? Well, it's he wouldn't have made it without something, without a change in his life. Um, but uh, say six months after uh, after Landy was hired in the in the in the nineteen eighties, um, when Brian was you know past the crisis point, 
um, then the balance of the relationship uh, you know changed dr- dramatically from from one of you know saving to one of exploitation and um, that's unfortunate um, and it was a very difficult decade for Brian and everybody who loved him uh, to to live through um, but you know Br- Brian is um, is is a great artist and great artists I don't think great artists can exist in 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 a, in a state of happiness. Um, there seems to need to be a certain amount of turmoil. Now there are certainly some exceptions. Uh, uh, you know, Paul McCartney. Uh, he's been doing this now well over fifty years, and um, there's 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 life in his life, but but the drama is is not paramount. Whereas, in, and I think um, if we're going to analyze things again. We we can look at the fact that uh, Sir Paul came from a great family, mm. a very solid upbringing, and Brian's was was filled with tension and contention from the beginning, and and that that has to have a have an enormous effect on one. the The question is, do you become a great artist if your life isn't screwed up? Uh, he's had such a late career renaissance, uh, completing mm-hmm. the Smile Project going out on tour uh, year after year. Uh, how much of that is uh, because of the uh, the support and the strength that he gets from Melinda? Well, there's no question that uh, without Melinda in his life, none of that would have happened. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's very simple. And I remember uh, around, I don't remember whether it was 96, 97, 98, somewhere in the late 90s, he was doing an interview. And the, one of the things about Brian is he's extremely economical in his interviews. Um, every time I would interview him, I would leave thinking I had done a terrible interview. <laughs> uh, that I hadn't gotten anything good out of it. And then I'd go home and I'd listen to the tapes or I'd look at the videotape and I'd go, huh, well, he says a lot without saying very much. And, and, the, and the case I'm bringing up right now is um, the... the the uh, I guess this was 1998, so it was right around the Imagination album, and the person interviewing him said, "Why are you doing this now? You know what? Why did why is this the right time for you to be uh, making a new album and going out on tour for the first time?" And Brian um, said, "I have emotional security." Four words, mm. and but it says it all. Uh, the Smile Project uh, that I think a lot of people thought would never be completed. Uh, it turned out to be a wonderful and award-winning project. Part of that, too, was having that dynamite band. I've had the pleasure of uh, of seeing Brian on his solo tour several times and then uh, on the 50th anniversary reunion tour. But the guys in that band are so good. And he, he often says in concert, it's the best band I've ever played with. Um, it's a remarkable group. It's a remarkable group. Uh, Darian Sahanaja, Nick Walusko, Proven Gregory, um, you know, and on and on. Jafasket, of course, who who has been in the Beach Boys world for well over thirty years now. Um, they they just uh, brought uh, a lifetime of passion and respect for the music, and um, their love of the music. Uh, and and their 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 endless and boundless determination to kind of t- 
take the original arrangements apart and make sure they were playing the songs the way Brian had originally arranged and produced them. And that had happened once before in Beach Boys history when Daryl Dragon, uh, mm. you know, before he became the captain of the Captain of Tennille, um had had gone out on the Beach Boys in, uh, on tour with the Beach Boys in the late '60s, and then in the '70s when the band really was enhanced with the addition of uh, Ricky Fitar and Blondie Chaplin, and and they were touring behind Sunflower and and the Surf's Up and and Carl the Passions and Holland Elm. They they really were 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 a stunningly great uh, live band. Um, and and it was in, in that era actually that I think Mike nicknamed Daryl Dragon Captain Keyboards, and that's how he became the captain. <laughs> and Tony Tennille, I think, was a background singer in that same era, and that's uh, you know the Captain Tennille was born out of that. Um, but Brian's band is, is is kind of a different thing. It's it's almost as if these guys were fated to be uh, in in this aggregation. And the responsibility with which they they approached the music, um, it it heartened Brian tremendously. He just loved to sit there and sound check and, and or rehearsal and listen to his sounds coming back at at him the way they were supposed to. He's had so much acclaim from other artists uh, over the last couple of decades uh, for his his talent. Is one of the great. American songwriters of all time. He's got a stable family with Melinda and his kids. He's out touring. He continues to make new music. Has he found some semblance of peace in his life? Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's as much peace as, 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 as one can have. I mean, it's when, when one has been down the roads, he's been down. I mean, you know, you, you rub somebody with sandpaper for 50 years their skin's never going to be smooth, is it? But uh, you know, he's he has he has found an equanimity and a, and a and a joy and a satisfaction in presenting his music live the last twenty years. That is, you know, one of the most unexpected, unpredictable, and surprising turns of events in music history. A guy who quit the road when he was what twenty two years old, so he could concentrate on making records. At uh, you know, at fifty something, decides you know what? I think I want a tour. <laughs> uh, go figure. David Leaf joining us here on Downtown the podcast. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about another wonderful figure in popular music. A lot of people have said one of the great voices, maybe one of the best in uh, pop and rock music, Harry Nielsen. First, a word from our sponsors and our friends at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, and visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, a couple of friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. And with that, Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine their love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. 
whether it's the nice weiss the sun and shine ipas stouts porters or any of their seasonal offerings you'll love what they've got brewing at nice ask for beers from nice g-n-e-i-s-s at your favorite restaurant or bar work hard play hard be nice Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind In 1969, that became the first big hit for Harry Nielsen. Everybody's talking from the soundtrack of the motion picture Midnight Cowboy. Well, one of the many ironies of Harry's life as a singer-songwriter is that that first hit was not written by him, but by composer Fred Neal. There are a lot of interesting stories in the life of Harry Nielsen. Many of them were told in the documentary film Who is Harry Nielsen and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? produced by David Leaf, who shared some thoughts and memories of the making of the film and of Harry Nielsen. What was it that drew you to the story of Nielsen? Well, a couple of uh, friends of mine here in, in Los Angeles uh, approached me. Uh, we had breakfast. This is about 25 years ago. And uh, said, what about a movie about Harry Nilsson? I'd been making documentaries, and uh, uh, the fact that they there had never been anything about Harry, the fact that he had been uh, you know, so close to so many great artists, had made so much great art himself, um, seemed to be a natural fit for the kinds of stories I like to tell, which are stories that uh, aren't uh, being kind of being rehashed over and over again. Harry seemed to be the kind of guy that other songwriters and other singers looked up to. Well, he had one of the most beautiful uh, white pop voices imaginable. Um, as a songwriter, he seemed to have an almost um, unbelievably melodic gift that came uh, naturally to him. He he was, uh, you know, I once I once wrote a line: if music is math, Brian Wilson is Einstein. Harry Harry was a mathematical genius too. I think he just was a genius, and music came very very easily to him. As a result of that, and I saw an interview you did where, where you said that because it came easily to him, Harry sometimes believed that his talent wasn't worthwhile. Well, you've done your homework. Um, I, I, I find myself as kind of a very amateur psychologist in, in, in whether I'm writing a book about somebody or making a, a documentary about them. And Harry seemed to regard his talent um as it 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 was so easy for him that he he didn't um value it and he seemed to waste it and discard it and destroy it um without too much thought i thought one of the most uh, interesting stories in the documentary was his relationship with his first producer rick gerard uh, who enabled him to record some albums that were so far ahead of their time in the late 1960s. But then uh, when he went away and met the Beatles and became friends with them, uh, Richard said he came back a changed man. Did he change from that experience? Well, of course, I, 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 
you know, I wasn't around in those days. I was just a, a music fan living back in the New York area. Um, that's one of the saddest moments of the story, the way uh, Rick very candidly talks about how he was discarded without without uh, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a kind uh ending and the, that part of the story that part of harry's personality that part of um his history uh really was disturbing um if 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 we if we were to talk about somebody who made really dark music and they had a dark personality that really wouldn't be surprising. But when somebody made such beautiful sounds um, and uh, seemed to almost have a casual cruelty about him, that that was very sad to me. Uh, it reminds me of what uh, a friend of mine who was very, very successful in the music business said to me, um, this is about 30 years ago, I, I was talking about an artist whose music I loved and was quite unhappy to hear that he was a, that this artist in particular was 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 kind of a cruel person. And he said to me, David, uh, lesson number one in the music business: consider the art, not the artist. <laughs> and that's you know kind of one of the dangers of what I've done is sometimes you get too close to the story. And just like a fire, you can get burned. One of the many conundrums of Nilsson's career is that he didn't perform live, a few television appearances, but did not go out on tour. And there are all kinds of theories about that. In talking with all the people you did for the documentary, what's your best guess as to why he had no desire to go out on tour? Uh, I think Danny Hutton says it best. Danny Hutton, of course, who was the founder and one of the three three uh, lead vocalists of Three Dog Night, uh, and knew Harry very well. Um, of course, Three Dog Night had a massive hit with Harry's song One. Um, he seemed to indicate that Harry had had a very bad experience performing live early on and didn't want to do it again. And because he didn't have to, he didn't. For the most part, um, live performing is what you do when you're starting out because it's the only way you can get people to hear your music. Mm. And Harry um, was discovered early on. He was, was he working in a bank and, 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 and writing songs, and all of a sudden he had deals and albums and hits. He didn't have to have to go that route, um, and so he chose not to. Um, more disturbingly, I think it's one of the reasons that he kind of was MIA that, that uh, you know, came up with the title Who Was Harry Nilsson? Because he didn't have a very public footprint. People didn't say, oh my God, remember the time we saw Harry Nilsson mm. when? There's none of that. Well, and there's certainly a pattern of behavior that, well, self-destructive, uh, certainly a career destructive. Uh, he got together with Richard Perry, made his masterpiece, Nielsen Schmilson. And then in the midst of recording the second album, basically did what he wanted to breaking the agreement that he had with Perry and uh, didn't produce a single that was able to be played on the air on top 40 radio stations. And then uh, jumped from there to making an album of standards, even though it was likely to be a commercial failure. Well, he, he definitely uh, did what he wanted to do. 
And I think you use the right phrase, self-destructive. What drove that in him? Was that, um, again, I'll let you put on your amateur uh, psychologist hat. Was part of that the guilt that he had for following the pattern uh, of his own father and abandoning his family? Well, it does. It's, uh, uh, Rich, you could be interviewing yourself here. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, the, 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 the amateur psychologist would, would say exactly that. He, he was abandoned uh, and left really to his own devices, and he seemed to abandon his, he abandoned his first family, and he abandoned his, uh, his talent. He abandoned his audience. I thought one of the most poignant stories in the film involved his son, Zach, uh, who was abandoned by him at the, at the age of three. And then uh, very late, I think it was when he was uh, going over to London uh, to record uh, for the soundtrack of The Fisher King, and, and he took Zach with him. And what a, what a sweet but sad story that was. Definitely, a, definitely a bittersweet moment. Uh, it, you know, fortunately, it gave Zach a great memory to to hold on to. But um, it's it's the, the the film is kind of scattered with that kind of heartbreak. And I think John Scheinfeld and, and Pete Lynch, who edited, Pete edited and John directed, did a, did a great job of balancing out. The, that those heartbreaking moments with enough laughter and lightness that uh, otherwise, if you, if you focused on, on some of the darker spots, you might walk away not wanting to to uh, be a Harry Nilsson fan anymore. So I think the film really, you know, Harry Nilsson fans can't get enough of it. Um, but uh, you know, he, he was he was brilliant and complicated. And un- unlike any any pop star we've seen, he had a very interesting relationship with John Lennon—a complex relationship. Uh, he idolized Lennon, uh, but at the same time, uh, got very destructive, self-destructive with him and recording uh, the Pussycats album, where they got into this competition to to see who could scream the loudest, and then blew out his voice and uh, did damage to it that would take years to recover from. Uh, he never really recovered from it. And and that's that's that may be the moment in the movie where I just want to close my eyes and cry that uh, he he purposely and carelessly just destroyed this magnificent instrument. Was that do you think uh, an effort for him to try and impress his hero Lennon? I, I don't know. I mean, the, 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 that kind of conjecture is hard to get into. It, it's it, if we just look at the behavior as what it was, it's just head shakingly sad. Um, it's it's also hard to know, you know, what uh, altered states everybody was in during that mm-hmm. era. It was a pretty crazy time. Uh, one of the great stories in the film, and one of the saddest, is Jimmy Webb talking about uh, the final time that he was with Harry when they sat in the car yeah. and, and Harry played some of his music. And we talked with Alan Shipton, who wrote the wonderful biography of Harry, who said he, he thinks that probably what they listened to was the three-CD set that Harry was trying to convince the record company to release toward the end of his life. Um, it's, I mean, J- Jimmy Webb... Uh, uh, 
uh, an extraordinary songwriter, an extraordinary brilliant man. Uh, I teach a, a course in songwriting at UCLA, and I use I use Jimmy's book Tunesmith uh, as a textbook in it because as smart as he is about everything, uh, he he probably has written the best book on songwriting as well. And so his he and Harry had a had a, had a mutual admiration society as artists and. Um, they, as friends, could challenge each other on on any subject. And I think doesn't Jimmy say something in the movie about how Harry could take the most preposterous ideas and convince you, <laughs> almost convince you that they were right. Right. And and so it's clear that there was a lot of fun going on, a lot of a lot of a lot of great mind games and 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 artistic challenges. The the uh, the scene you describe with uh, with um, Jimmy Webb listening to Harry's songs um, it, it's uh, it's it's beautiful and, and heartbreaking. Aren't you going to ask me about any of the funny moments? In the well, film? yeah, that's <laughs> that's uh, what's interesting to me. All of this sadness, uh, all of these stories that break your heart, and yet. Uh, most of the film is people laughing about their uh, adventures with Harry, and whether it was uh, the late Robin Williams or Eric Idle or Jerry Beckley or any of these guys, uh, the legendary stories about what would happen when uh, Harry showed up at your door and said, "Let's go." Yeah, well, uh, cl- clearly, the 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 I guess we could have called the film "The Misadventures of Harry Nilsson, too. But actually, the ti- the title came from uh, an old. Uh, uh, it was kind of a pun on on Harry's Harry's life, and also an old Dustin Hoffman movie. It was called "Who Is Harry Kellerman?" And uh, you know why are the sh- the chefs after him? I forget the name of the movie exactly, but it was something like that. It was who is Harry Nelson, and why is everybody talking about him? Of course, his his first big hit as as an artist, and you know again one of the great ironies of this songwriter's life was that his two biggest hits, uh, "Without You" and uh, and, and everybody's talking. He didn't write. Right. People are and, still and that gnawed at him. Also, people are still talking about him. I mean, the documentary I think was uh, about a decade ago now, but people are still talking about him. There have been new music releases. Uh, do you feel the sense that people continue to discover Harry's music and and become fans even now, almost a quarter century since he died? Well, there's no there's no question that people keep discovering his music and. I'm forgetting the name of of uh, one of his latter songs that that has shown up in a in a commercial and it, I don't know whether it's for banking or an investment company. It's just it's so odd that they've picked this unbelievably not melodic song where he's kind of screaming, almost primal screaming, <laughs> and there there he is on in the middle of primetime television. Um, and and so, and that's the, you know the great thing about real art is that it survives everything. And uh, you know Harry Harry was 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 most definitely a great artist um, who who went his own way almost all the time. And and I, I guess you know to to because he loved puns, you might say you know so what's the point of all of this? And of course the point was was his masterpiece that really has. Um, has been handed down kind of uh, from parent to child, generation after generation. Mm. David Leaf uh, talking about Harry Nielsen, Brian Wilson before that, a great conversation about music with uh, David Leaf.
here on Downtown, the podcast. We appreciate you joining us this time around. We remind you that the podcast is brought to you by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine, and by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. You can, of course, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends, spread the word, available on iTunes, Google Play, get it delivered to your device, be it Apple or Android in nature. Next week, a fun conversation on the program, a talented actor, but best known as one of the founding members of one of the funniest comedy troops of all time, the Firesign Theater. Phil Proctor joins us next week on Downtown Podcast. For producer Kerry Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time on Downtown.